Good afternoon, distinguished guests and professors. Uh, I'm Kevin Liao. It's my great honor uh, to host today's event and uh, introduce uh, today's speaker, uh, Professor Justin Bullock. Uh, Justin Bullock is an assistant professor um, in public service and the administration department at the Texas A&M University in the U.S. And he also a research fellow uh, in the Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy uh, at Texas A&M. Uh, he earned his PhD uh, in public administration and policy in the University of Georgia in 2014. He is especially concerned about the effect between these three areas intersect, especially interested in the um, uh, in, in the challenges, opportunities, and the uh, rapid changes in the uh, information and the technology uh, uh, this time. So he also a very uh, innovative and hardworking young scholar. <laughs> he published his uh, research on many high quality uh, journals in the field of public administration, especially on public administration review, a journal of public administration um, and policy research and uh, theory, and the international public management journal, and uh, so forth. So uh, I think today's topic, creating artificial bureaucrats, is one of his concerns, a special research concern in these days. And I also believe it is one of cutting edge issues in the field of public administration. So I think all of you, just like I am, can wait to hear his today's talk. So let's give us warmest welcome to Professor Justin Bullock. Thanks so much for the introduction, uh, Professor Lau. And, uh, Thanks so much for National Changchi University for having me for the summer, uh, and Professor Ji Wong for organizing me uh, to come as a fellow for the Taiwan Institute for Governance and Communication Research. I've had the pleasure of being here in Taiwan since May 12th. Um, it was not as hot in May, um, so I've been adjusting to the summer even from Texas. It's a bit warm, uh, but I've had a wonderful stay. and. Maybe most importantly, for today's purposes, I've had a lot of time, thanks to the fellowship and the resources, and mostly the t uh, freedom of time, to explore this topic a little bit more. Um, the topic today is creating artificial bureaucrats, which may initially sound like uh, some robots that we're going to talk about, um, but we're actually going to talk a little bit more abstract than robots and think about artificial systems more generally. Um, this talk is going to cover stuff from public administration, stuff from computer science, and things from engineering. Um, I'm going to try to talk about the topics in as broad and as accessible language as possible. Uh, I'm not a computer scientist or an engineer, so um, I'm going to avoid super technical uh, language in terms of, instead of having a broader language. So hopefully it'll be easy for you to follow along. I intend to leave about 15 to 20 minutes at the end to ask questions. So I hope that uh, this generates some discussion and some questions for the end. So as the title suggests, creating artificial bureaucrats a path forward. Um, as uh, artificial intelligence increases, the use of artificial discretion, which I talked about in my last talk, but I'll recap here in a moment. Um, this, I think, presents a question for us of 
How do we actually think about these processes as they automate jobs and responsibilities and become their own complex systems? Um, I'm Dr. Justin Bullock. As uh, Professor Lau mentioned, I'm an assistant professor at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. I'm associated with our Institute for Science, Technology, and Public Policy, and currently a fellow here uh, at the Taiwan Institute for Governance, Communication, and Research. Uh, my research interests uh, include public administration, artificial intelligence, artificial discretion, which again, if you don't know what that is, I'll explain that momentarily. Uh, bureaucratic error, which is what initially got me interested in artificial intelligence as a way to maybe decrease errors in government. And motivation, which is what some of my earlier research was on. All right, so we're going to cover a lot of topics today, so I'll start with an outline. I'm going to begin with a brief recap of some of the work I've already presented and uh, some of which is recently available uh, in published format as of June and one that will be available here in about two weeks online um, and the relationship between those topics and bureaucracy. Then we're going to step away a little bit and talk about artificial systems more generally in the way that engineers or computer scientists might think about them. We're going to rely pretty heavily on some work by uh, the genius Herbert Simon, who seems to be everywhere in the work I'm discovering these days. Um, he talks about he has a book, a nice book called Sciences of the Artificial. It was last updated in 1996, which it turns out is really relevant to some of the ways of thinking about how to apply artificial intelligence and artificial discretion to government and what those systems look like, how we can begin to think about them. We're going to move from that broader uh, framework to think about complex intelligent systems. What, they, what are their characteristics? What basic competencies might they need to be considered complex intelligent systems? We're going to talk about learning as defined in part by Simon, but also Dan Dennett in his recent book, uh, From Bacteria to Bach and Back, and uh, Eric Drexler, who we're going to pull on for some work as well, who earlier this year released a report called Reframing Superintelligence that was published by the Future of Humanity Institute. They have some ideas about what it means for both humans and artificial systems to learn, and as they develop skills through that learning process, they develop what we're going to call competencies or capabilities. And then how is that similar or different from how we think of as comprehension skills that we have as humans? Do these artificial systems really comprehend things in the same way we do? And if, if they do, what does that mean? And if they don't, what does that mean for the deployment of artificial bureaucrats? Then I'm going to define what I mean by a bureaucrat and then talk about what an artificial one might look like. What components might they have? based on all of this we've talked about from uh, the artificial systems, learning, competencies, and comprehension. That's going to bring us to the final point, which we're going to reframe using uh, Eric Drexler's language, how we thought about superintelligence and how we think about super-capable artificial intelligences. There's a big worry in the field of artificial intelligence about them becoming either conscious or self-recursive improving to the way that we don't have control of them anymore. And Drexler actually gives us a framework for thinking about ways to mitigate that in this comprehensive uh, services approach that he provides. I'm going to offer that as approach for thinking about how we develop artificial bureaucrats and their skills and uh, competencies over time. Okay? All right. 
So, um, artificial intelligence capabilities, uh, if you don't pay attention to science and technology, they're in the news all the time. They're being highlighted in business and in the public sector. Uh, you may have seen reports in particular of the way the U.S. is beginning to use these tools, but maybe a little bit more closer to home, the way China is beginning to use some of these tools within government. And this has created some thorny ethical issues for things like uh, surveillance and depression, things that we might care about as uh, freedom-loving democratic people. Um, so it's raised some concerns. Um, I've thought about this in some of my earlier work as uh, AI being an information communication technology tool. So if you come from a public administration or public management background, that might be some language um, that is useful to you. And that as a consequence of the type of tools that we have now, this is changing how discretion is used in government. It's actually changing the shape of bureaucracies as well. We'll talk a little bit, we'll recap that work here in a minute. Um, and artificial discretion is what my co-authors and I propose as a conceptual framework for thinking about the way artificial intelligence is replacing or augmenting uh, human discretion. But that work only goes so far. We essentially say, hey, these AI tools are powerful, they can help uh, augment and improve some decisions, and they can some automate some decisions. But we really stop there. We don't talk so much about what happens once we automate those decisions. What should those systems look like? And that's what I'm going to mean when I'm talking about artificial bureaucrats. And then again, we will uh, look at comprehensive artificial intelligence services as an approach for how we can carefully and intelligently use the capabilities and competencies of the development of AI to improve government without maybe losing out to robot overlords, all right? So last time I uh, gave a talk here, we talked about a paper I have in the American Review of Public Administration called Artificial Intelligence, Discretion, and Bureaucracy. And in this paper, I make the argument that um, bureaucracy itself has been changing and the way that it's designed and shaped. Right? In 2002, I believe, these two authors, Bovins and Zoridis, in Public Administration Review, which is one of our leading journals, started to highlight and notice this change. So look, we used to have what we call street-level bureaucracies, which is sort of what you think about with a police officer or a teacher being on the ground providing basic services, caseworkers, loan officers, out amongst us on the street um, providing services. But over time, as we got computers and we, our digital technologies improved, this shifted to a screen-level bureaucracy, which is where you sit. It may be an Excel spreadsheet. You're entering in data by hand. You're communicating by email. A lot of this interaction went from on the street to behind screens. Right? And then in the early 2000s, they were highlighting that something else was changing. That they called this systems-level bureaucracy where actually some of the decisions and structures and processes of bureaucracy were being programmed. Not just from someone sitting behind a computer entering data, but it was actually changing the processes and the way we interact in bureaucracies. The examples that they give that I think are, are useful to maybe highlight this are things like having cameras installed in red lights. Right? And in these, uh, in these processes, the camera takes a picture goes through a database, finds your license plate number, and issues the ticket and sticks it kind of in the mail, all essentially automatically without any human intervention, unless you protest it, all right? Another one is the classic loan officers for student loans. I'm not exactly sure how this works in Taiwan, but in the US, as a student, if I wanted student loans, I went online, found the application, put in all my information, 
parents' information, how much money they made, and then it sent off, and then an algorithm automatically determined how much money I was going to qualify for. No human involved. These are some examples of tasks that, are, that have been automated that then lead to changes in the structure of the bureaucracy. Okay, in this paper, I argue that we need to take a task-based approach to thinking about how AI is changing discretion. Certain tasks are gonna be easy and better uses of AI. Other tasks, we don't wanna turn over to AI. And I argue that this is gonna depend on the, the type of task, how much discretion is involved, how complex the task is, how much uncertainty there is involved, and the consequences of the task, okay? And I also argue that organizational characteristics matter as well. So the type of organization and the type of tasks it's uh, executing, you can think of the judicial system or policing as one example that's different from personnel decisions, all right? And at different levels within an organization. So these levels that are still kind of micro level done by an individual actor, those are what we call micro level. Then we have meso level, which is like organizational processes type tasks. And then we have macro, institutional strategic decision-making, stirring the ship of the organization, okay? Those are some of the task characteristics that I highlighted in this early piece about thinking about when to use artificial intelligence. Um, throughout this talk, and this will be the first example of this, I rely on some direct quotes um, for you to, to read and me to highlight um, because I think I said it better here than I can repeat it in front of you today. Um, so this one quote says, AI has been increasing in capacity and thus in overall intelligence and ability to accomplish discretionary tasks. As AI capacity exceeds that of humans in many task domains, we can refer to this maybe as being super intelligent, more intelligent than humans. Uh, this increase in intelligence could increase the overall quality of discretionary tasks and thus the overall quality of administration. But even if the overall quality of administration can be improved, AI changes the nature of risks to good governance in significant and important ways. We're gonna come back to this, but essentially this means that with these new tools, there are new things we need to worry about government. Rather than just trying to motivate people and have professional kind of uh, learning and knowledge, these tools can be used to do things really quickly and really powerfully and without the interaction of professionals on the ground. Right? So it introduced new types of risks to government. Finally, the power and versatility of AI beg the question, what goals should it be directed to accomplish? In this way, AI has been described as a dual-use technology. It can be used toward a wide variety of ends, both good and evil. Given this, we need a better understanding of which values of governance should be maximized and optimal balance among traditional priorities, such as effectiveness, efficiency, and equity. So the one thing I want you to note here that in this, uh, this paper that came out earlier in this year, one of my concerns was how we have essentially a utility function that needs to be maximized. How would we program public values into a utility maximizing agent? And it seemed to me that I didn't have a good answer, all right? And at this time, I argued that what we should try to do is minimize administrative evil, minimize the capacity to do harm. But I think that's an unsatisfactory answer, right? So I've been mulling over this and we're gonna come back to this here in a moment. That paper led to a co-authored project with Matthew Young at Syracuse University and Jesse Lacey at Arizona State University for a paper again that will be available um, online here in a couple weeks. 
called uh, Artificial Discretion, a tool of governance, uh, and it is a framework for understanding the impact of artificial intelligence on governance, on public administration. So here we talk about some, a little bit, go into a little bit more detail about the way in which AI can be useful for government. And we talk about how it's built to automate learning through abstract representation. We talk about how it can um, gather new data and quickly sort it through sensors. And then how it can uh, find trends and find causal relationships in data that we already have. Okay, and those are three things that, uh, that we talk about that it might be useful to do. And in that way, it can learn and adjust its behavior as well. So when we say artificial discretion, essentially what we're talking about is using artificial intelligence, again, to augment, enhance, change, or automate the exercise of administrative discretion. A couple more quotes from the paper that I think kind of helps situate this for you and what I mean when I'm using the term artificial discretion. Um, again, here I highlight the three different ways in which public managers might think about using artificial discretion. Creating structured data from unstructured input, using sensors, image data, natural language, leveraging large data sets to, to find patterns, generate new insights, make predictions, uh, excuse me, or automate components of tasks. And again, um, we're going to talk more about this eliminating the human components of administrative tasks through automation and maybe substituting an artificial bureaucrat as the direction we're headed. Um, we talk here about uh, the appropriateness of AI for specific tasks. Here again, I'm just trying to highlight for you that when we think about AI, the real way we think you should think about it is diving into the specific structure of a task that is located with, within an organization and has some level of complexity or uncertainty or some consequence with it. And these are going to be the things that help us think about when we should use AI and when we should not. And we argue in this paper too that this can be boiled down to generally thinking about the level of required discretion. All right. Discretion is the decision-making latitude, the use of professional human judgment in implementing the law. And in general, areas, tasks that require higher, more levels of discretion are going to be the ones that are really hard to turn over to AI. Right? It's going to be hard to clearly define the task in a way that AI can, uh, can automate it. But note that AI can still be useful even in those tasks for gathering new types of data that might be useful in making decisions or finding new patterns to help augment the decision. Help the decision maker, the human bureaucrat, have enough information, better information, to make a more quality decision. Take a sip of my tea. Am I still loud enough for the back? Okay. So now I've recapped the two papers uh, that I've given in previous talks and highlighted that artificial intelligence already can be used in the form of artificial discretion, once again, to augment or automate some tasks. In those papers, we say, hey, right now, we really only want to automate tasks that are relatively not that complex, that don't require a huge amount of human judgment, because the current AI tools aren't so good at that. Um, and there are some other reasons, but mainly because the tools aren't as good as human judgment in some of these areas. 
But the story of AI is that it continues to improve. Right? The capabilities of AI are dramatically improving. It's a really rich, uh, large field now. Uh, the ability to have a lot of computation power is high-powering these algorithms. The access to a ton of data is improving the ability of the algorithms to have human-like judgment in some situations. So AI is not just going to stop right where it is. It will continue to improve. It will continue to be able to automate more and more parts of human judgment. Okay. And so how do we go about doing that? Do we wait until we have a, a completely dexterous robot that has a personality and that has some level of artificial general intelligence and it can interact with a human? Maybe not. Maybe that's not the best way to go forward, right? So how do we think about this? So I'm going to argue today, um, and I'm really looking forward to your feedback. This is the first time I presented this, these ideas. So if you think these are some terrible ideas, definitely push back because I'm trying to find ways to refine this argument. I'm going to argue that we should create artificial systems. And we're going to call them artificial bureaucrats. All right? Doesn't mean they need to have a physical form. Doesn't mean they need to have a body. They're just going to be complex, intelligent systems, which I'm going to describe in a little bit more detail in a moment. And there's going to be these complex, intelligent systems that are going to automate tasks, that are going to employ their own artificial discretion. Okay. Now, to understand what I mean by that, I think we have to back up and think about what are artificial systems. All right? This is not stuff that I had learned in the field of public administration or political science or public management. I had no idea how to think about artificial systems. I'm not a computer scientist, and I'm not an engineer. So I set about doing a ton of reading. And it turns out that Herbert Simon, who wrote maybe the most famous book in public administration, Administrative Behavior, also dealt in artificial intelligence, which I knew, but did not know that he wrote a book, and this is the, the third edition of it in 1996, called The Sciences of the Artificial, where brilliantly, I think, he makes an argument for what are artificial systems how do we think about them and how do we characterize them? Okay, so here in a few minutes, I'm going to try to unload all the information I learned from that whole book to you. All right, so let's start with a quote. What is artificial? Simon says, my definitionary, my definitionary, <laughs> my dictionary defines artificial as produced by art rather than by nature, not genuine or natural, affected, not pertaining to the essence of the matter. It proposes as synonyms affected. Fictitious, manufactured, pretended, sham, which I like, simulated, spurious, trumped up, unnatural. As antonyms, it lists actual, genuine, honest, natural, I like honest too, real, truthful, and unaffected. All right? So Simon says, our language seems to me seems to reflect man's deep distrust of his own products. I shall not try to assess the validity of that evaluation or explore its possible psychological roots. I can tell you as someone who's gone around and talked about artificial intelligence to public administration people, these psychological roots run very deep. But you will have to understand me, and you have to understand me today giving this talk, as using artificial in as neutral a sense as possible. It simply means man-made as opposed to natural. Okay? So when I talk about artificial, I don't mean fake or fraud or lies. I just mean it's something that an engineer or a computer scientist or a human made. Okay, that's all we're going to mean by artificial. 
To further help us think about this, Simon gives us four characteristics that distinguish artificial systems from natural systems. Right? Artificial things are synthesized, though not always or usually with full forethought by human beings. Synthesized just meaning created, designed, made. Artificial things may imitate appearances in natural things while lacking in one or many respects of uh, aspects of the reality of the latter. Okay, so this is going to be important when we get back to artificial bureaucrats because artificial bureaucrats, I'm going to argue, are going to make some decisions like human. They'll actually surpass the capacity of humans to make some decisions, but they're still going to be lacking at least one key human thing in decision making that we're going to care about for some important tasks. So it can make decisions like a human, it can surpass humans in some capacities, but it's not going to have all the respects of the reality of the human. Okay? Artificial things can be characterized in terms of their functions, their goals, and their adaptation. All right? Adaptation being their learning processes, their ability to see some state and have some process to get from their initial state to that desired state. How do they adapt? How do they take from their one state to get to another? How do they learn? How do they adjust? And artificial things are often discussed, particularly when they are being designed, in terms of imperatives as well as descriptives. So this is the idea that uh, we're going to spend less time on, but that Simon talks about as we can talk about artificial systems and what they are. Like, this is a phone. It has a screen. right? It allows me to input data and receive phone calls as well as the technical process for how it does that, are ways in which we can describe these artificial systems. So to go in a little bit more on the functions, goals, and adaptations of artificial things, artificial systems, these are more quotes from Simon. Simon says, fulfillment of purpose or adaptation to a goal involves a relation among three terms. The actual goal itself, what it's trying to do, what it's trying to accomplish, the character of the artifact, what is it, how is it designed, and the environment in which that artifact is doing its duties. What is its external environment? Okay, So to make this a little bit maybe more clear, Simon talks about artificial things having been de decomposed essentially into three things that we can think about. We can think of it as an interface. Okay, Interface, screen on your computer, on your phone, the thing that you're interacting with, the thing you're seeing your monitor, right? The outer environment. The phone's outer environment is all of us, right? The whole world, right? Inner environment is a thing inside that we can't see, and this is expensive, so I'm not going to take it apart to show you, but there's circuits and there's all kinds of moving transistors and things in here, right? That's where it's clear I'm not a computer scientist because I don't know all the terms for those things, right? But it has an inner environment. It's actually doing the computations, doing the things of the artificial system. For example, if an artificial thing needs to adapt to an external environment that is complex, it too will need to be complex enough in its inner environment to handle its complex external environment in which it needs to adapt itself in order to fulfill its purpose or accomplish a goal. Right? So there has to be something about the inner environment that can do complex enough computations, complex enough things, so that it can respond intelligently, respond in a way that's useful, align it with its external environment. Right? Some ways you can also, which I don't think we can go into this later, but 
as more of a natural systems also have this, right? Think of you as a human, right? You have the interface, which is how you interact with the world. It's what people see, your eyes, your skin. It's how people can kind of perceive you. You have the external environment that you're constantly having to adapt and learn about. And you have the internal environment, your cells and organs and muscles and systems inside of you, right? So there's some, uh, some corollaries here to our natural systems as well. Again, adaptation is a way of describing an artificial thing's ability to learn, to adjust itself to its external environment, um, and continued adaptation may be needed for a complex enough environment, right? So uh, think of an artificial thing like a clock, right? A clock doesn't need to be able to change. It needs to be able to do an old-fashioned, you know, on-the-wall clock. It just does the same thing, right? It's got the second hand. As the second hand comes around, the minute hand slowly going, and as the minute hand goes around, the hour hand moves, right? So it doesn't have to be super complex, but our computers, our computing machines, have much more complexity. They need to be able to adapt and adjust. And here, maybe a robot is a pretty good example, although I'm trying to stay away from the robot uh, analogy too much. All right, so we've talked about what are artificial things, what are artificial systems, and I keep using this word complex and complexity. And um, this is one of the biggest, uh, other biggest revelations I had from reading Simon and treating his work seriously. He gives us a way to think about complexity, right? And it's complexity that's uh, mirrored in the natural world and how things are out in reality in the real world. It mirrors how our bodies work. It also excuse me, mirrors how we design complex artificial things. All right, so Simon says, I shall not undertake a formal definition of complex systems. Roughly by a complex system, I mean one made up of a large number of parts that have many interactions. In such systems, the whole is more important than the sum of the parts in the weak but pragmatic sense that given the properties of the parts and the laws of their interaction, it is not a trivial matter to infer the properties of the whole. That's a mouthful, right? But essentially what he means is that complex things are made up of smaller parts that interact together, right? So again, think of your body, right? Cells or maybe atoms make the smallest part. Then we get up to maybe molecules, right? Then we get up to cells. Then cells going together give you organs. Organs give you systems. Systems give you your body, right? And it's really hard to... Um, they're, they're, well, we'll get into that in a minute. So those smaller parts interact and they generate complex things. And then you can think about the body, you can think about your phone at different levels. We can think about it at the level of the atom, level of the cells, level of the systems, and the level of you. But we can actually go further than that too. We can think of social systems, right? Where we're not thinking about just one person. We're thinking about how markets interact or institutions interact. Thus, my central theme, uh, Simon says, is that complexity frequently takes the form of hierarchy and that hierarchic systems have common properties independent of their specific content. By hierarchic system or hierarchy, I mean a system that is composed of interrelated subsystems, each of the latter being in turn hierarchic until, in structure until we reach some low, lowest level of elementary subsystem. Now, I'm a millennial, probably like most of you, minus some of the professors. Right? And I grew up uh, being a little um, worried about hierarchies and the harm that they do in society. Right? So when I first come across hierarchy, I don't like this term. Right? 
But Simon means something a little bit different than what we traditionally think of like top-down formal hierarchy. All he means is that there are smaller things that interact in a related way that give rise to bigger things. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need formal authority telling those things what to do. It's just the interrelated of the smaller parts, the subsystems, give rise to a more complex system. All right? So if you two are afraid of hierarchy, don't be. All right? He means something a little different from it here. So he gets a little bit technical here, and this is a little less important for you to grasp for what I'm going to eventually get to, but I want you to be aware of it because I think it's useful. So Simon describes complexity as being made up of uh, nearly decomposable systems, right? And nearly decomposable means that they are subsystems that are not uh, assembled from components per se, but hierarchic structure produced either by assembly or specialization, okay? So the idea here is that if you go into your body, you can decompose it into smaller parts like organs and cells, but those things aren't useful on their own. They need to be part of a bigger system. So it's not completely decomposable into those small systems. It's in part about how they all interact together. All the small subsystems interacting into a larger complex system. And why this is important is going to be for a technical reason um, that we'll highlight a little bit at the end is for the artificial bureaucrats, which is there is potential for rapid evolution in any complex system that consists of a set of stable subsystems. All right, so if all these subsystems are working together and they work well, it allows for a potential rapid improvement, rapid evolution in that thing. And one other interesting thing about the near decomposability is that the things at the lower level interact more and more quickly than the things at the higher level, all right? So the, the slower, lower frequency things govern, look over, uh, are the higher levels of complexity than the smaller parts. So hierarchic systems, again, are usually composed of only a few different kinds of subsystems and various combinations and arrangements. This is going to be important for thinking about the artificial bureaucrat as being composed of a lot of different types of competencies or capabilities that interact in some way. Hierarchic systems, as we've seen, are often nearly decomposable. Um, and by appropriate recording, uh, recoding, the redundancy that is present by but unobvious in the structure of a complex system can be made patent. This is um, Simon's way of saying that once we have hierarchic systems, it's easier to explain them because we can look at the different parts at different levels and make sense of them. If complexity takes the form of chaos, for example, which is another form of complexity, um, it's harder to make any heads or tails or any sense of it because we can't decompose it into these smaller parts. This is going to highlight, too, the difference between an artificially general intelligent self-recursive recursive agent and then what we're going to propose with this comprehensive AI services as a bureaucrat, which is gathering together subcomponents and subparts that interact in some way, rather than say be one master algorithm that is mysterious. Okay, a few more things about these artificial systems. One is how do they make how do they solve problems? And I alluded to this early and in the in the interest of time, I'm going to hit on it just quickly. But essentially, uh, the way artificial systems and really the way humans solve problems is you identify some problem. You identify some future state that you want to access. 
and you're in your current state, you're in initial state. And you've got to find a process to get from your current state to the state you would like to be in, right? This is adaptation. This is translation. This is going how to find a, type, a set of processes to go from the initial state you're in to some future state, okay? All right. So let's go, we started with artificial intelligence, artificial discretion, then we talked about artificial systems, how they're complex, how complexity is made up of these smaller subsystems working together, and we've talked about adaptation as one type of learning for an artificial system. Okay, now let's talk about complex intelligent systems broadly. These can be natural or artificial. I'm gonna bring the humans back into it, all right? So intelligence is a continuum, I assert, um, of an ability to solve complex problems, excuse me, complex goals. Uh, yeah, complex problems, achieve complex goals, right? And solving complex problems requires some level of learning, of adaptation from a current state to a desired state, right? Let's say you wanna learn statistics and you don't know statistics. You gotta go through a process to go from not knowing statistics to learning statistics. Or these institutions don't matter very much, right? So we've gotta go through a process to go, that's learning, that's going from where you are to acquiring some new knowledge, some new skill, all right? Complex systems have some set of competences that are and are typically hierarchical. So a competence is a capability, it's a capacity. It's you didn't know statistics and now you can do linear regression. Right? You didn't know algebra and now you can solve equations. Right? A competence for an AI system, for example, is being able to accurately translate natural language right? from one language to another in real time. It's a capacity, it's a capability. Right? And these capacities, these competences are usually made up of subsystems, sub pieces of information, sub things interacting that give rise to that competence. All right, so given these, Complex intelligence systems may be characterized as the following. Being hierarchical and thus nearly decomposable into their smaller subsystems. Having the general competence to learn, uh, see, acquire, to adapt to new skills and actions. Having the competence to integrate these skills and actions to perform tasks and accomplish goals. So you can't just have one competence all by itself. You've gotta be able to use it in a nuanced way to accomplish some important goal, or if we go back to think about the artificial system, some function, some purpose, okay? And this is where uh, we bring in back some specialness about humans. Uh, at some level of intelligence, an intelligent agent has the competence for deep level of comprehension, of understanding our own behavior why we do it, and having kind of a self-talk with ourselves about reflecting on our behaviors and our actions and having some meaningful understanding of them, right? This is the argument that philosopher Daniel Dennett makes in his new book. We'll talk a little bit more about it. But this is the thing that I'm going to argue moving forward that se still separates humans in our natural systems form from artificial systems and what they are capable of currently doing, all right? It's going to be an important piece of thinking about which types of tasks should be accomplished by artificial bureaucrats versus human bureaucrats. So a little bit more on learning to uh, 
give you a little bit more detail about what I mean when I'm using the word learning. We're going to pull here from Dan Dennett and Herbert Simon. Uh, learning is extracting information from the world encountered and using it to make local improvements. Uh, all learning can be similarly seen to be processes of self-redesign and in the default case, improvement of design. We see the acquisition of both know-how and factual information as learning, so learning a new skill and absorbing new uh, information. And it is always a matter of using the base of competence or knowledge you already have to, and to exercise quality control of what you acquire. That's for Dennett. For Simon, learning is any change in a system that produces more or less permanent change in its capacity for adapting to its environment. And along one dimension, similarly to Dennett, we can distinguish between acquiring information, stored data, and acquiring skills, stored procedures, stored processes. All right, that's a little more on learning. Competences, as I've alluded to, are sets of tasks that can be completed successfully or knowledge that is retained in a useful form. You can think of it and use it mostly interchangeably with capability or an overall capacity or proficiency in something. So it's this mysterious comprehension. Again, we rely on this from, from Dennett. Uh, comprehension is a capability that humans have evolved to, in some cases, reflect upon their competences and develop a meaningful understanding of them. Though it's important to recognize, too, that even within humans, we don't really have a deep comprehension of all of our capabilities, right? This is what a lot of science has been teaching us about particularly inner processes. But the example that I think of for me is uh, I played baseball in high school. And I learned how to take the baseball bat and put it right on the nose of the ball, right? It wasn't clear to me exactly what all the physics were involved, why that was the way the world worked, how gravity played a role, what were the causal mechanisms other than just brute bat hits ball, okay? So even some of the capabilities that we have, we don't necessarily have deep comprehension of. But... We have it, and we have it across lots of things, and it is the one thing that philosophers would argue, at least Dennett, as one of the world's leading philosophers, would say this is still what sets humans apart from artificial systems. Artificial systems can get really good at lots of things, but they don't have, it's not like, a, I just watched 2001 A Space Odyssey the other day, Stanley Kubrick's kind of classic on uh, a generally intelligent AI navigating the ship and taking it over. We don't have that, right? Our AIs aren't self-reflective, they're not conscious, they don't have that ability to kind of wrestle with their decisions and have a deep understanding of them. However, as I mentioned a moment ago, you can still be very good at learning, you can still be very competent without having a deep understanding, a comprehension of, of that capability. Comprehension is something that came later in the evolutionary track, right? We were able to learn as very simple organisms we developed competencies as moderately complex animals um, and plants, but arguably it's not till right up to human, although there's some debate about whether um, uh, great apes have some level of this, but it's really at human level where we can comprehend things and have explanations for things and manipulate symbols to tell stories about them. All right, so that's all the hard work. <laughs> And most of you are still awake, which is good. Thank you. All right. So I did all of that to get to this and where we're going to go with the final 10 minutes. So what are, what are bureaucrats? 
in general in public administration and public management, although some scholars would have really technical definitions, and I'm just going to sidestep all of that, just like we sidestep some of the other technical definitions. In general, bureaucrats have been humans who carry out the tasks of government, right? or governance organizations. Government creates laws, procedures, policies. Us humans implement them. Okay? We take the tasks that are given to us by law or by the organization that's put in place by law, and we implement those tasks. Bureaucrats have to learn, have to learn new skills, which give them general competences to complete tasks. All right? Some of these tasks they have a deep, meaningful understanding of, and it's important that they do, but not all of the tasks. And uh, they implement the law and do the work of government using discretion or judgment as necessary, right? So think of me as a bureaucrat. I work for a public institution at Texas A&M. Uh, the state of Texas created a charter a long time ago to create the uh, Texas A&M University. It was originally more agriculture and mechanical. They weren't really studying political science and public administration at that time. But alas, over time, institution has developed and grown, has rules and procedures. It's funded in, it's funded in part by the public. And then there's me. And my job is to do some research. My job is to teach some students. And my job is to do some administrative tasks, which I try to minimize as much as possible. Right? So as I become a professor, I had some training. I learned some things. I learned some things about public administration. I learned some things about teaching. But I knew half of what I knew now, five years later, doing this full time, right? At first, I had did some teaching. I was an OK teacher. But I kept learning how to be a better teacher. And so in general, I developed more competences. I got better at lecturing. I got better at assigning group work. I got better at discussions, right? And then I've been able to reflect at the end of each semester, man, did I do a good job? And if I didn't, that's a bummer, and if so, how can I do better? And if I did do a good job, like I reflect and try to think of how to even be more positive and have a better impact, right? So I'm this bureaucrat that we're describing, right? So let's expand our notion of, of human as specifically being the only thing that can be a bureaucrat, and just let's talk about complex intelligent systems. I've argued that natural... Uh, things can be complex and intelligent systems, and artificial things can be complex and intelligent systems. And let's see if the metaphor holds. All right? So if we think of humans as complex and intelligent systems, we can reframe, the, reframe this a little bit and say that bureaucrats, instead of being exclusively humans, are complex intelligent systems that complete governance tasks that are guided by implementing the law and using discretion or judgment as necessary. Okay. So I'm changing the definition of bureaucrat, saying not just human, but what are humans? They are complex intelligent systems. So let's just say complex intelligent systems in our new world with some of the capabilities we have. So given our language from Simon and under certain conditions, maybe, I'll argue, bureaucrats can be seen as either human or artificial things. So what might the structure of an artificial bureaucrat be at the abstract level? All right, I'm not going to design an intelligent robot today. It's beyond my skills. But let's pull back in some of the language from Simon. They would have functions, things that they could do, things they couldn't do. They would have goals of some sort, things they're trying to accomplish. 
Those goals might look like human goals. They might look like other types of goals, as the AI people would argue. They have adaptations. They would need to be able to learn and change their behavior and respond to their external environment. They would have some interface, going back to our phone, right? They need to have some way of interacting with the world. They would have an external environment, which in general would probably be the natural world. And they would have some inner environment. They would have some sets of things, subsystems, subcomponents, be embedded in a robot or just in a computing machine that make their inner environment. They would need to be able to implement governance tasks. Right? Governance tasks can be something that is accumulating and implementing some knowledge, or to use the robot analogy, actually out on the ground doing things. To do this, these intelligent systems, again, need to learn skills and actions that give them competences for completing their tasks and utilizing their knowledge, learning and competences. These systems will of necessity be complex because they're dealing with a complex outer environment and thus likely hierarchical systems made up of nearly decomposable subsystems. They'll have some set of subsystems located in their inner environment that allow them to interact with the external environment. So, if you're still with me, not completely off in science fiction land, hopefully you're still with me. If artificial systems can be developed that can learn and acquire competences, to complete governance tasks, which they can. They already do out in the real world. They too can be bureaucrats exercising artificial discretion, but under what conditions? All right, this is coming back to the question of, is it good for China to be able to use artificial intelligence to surveil and oppress their people, right? Is it good that we create super powerful artificially intelligent autonomous systems to wipe out entire cities, right? When is this good and when is it bad? Okay, so I'm not going to give you a definitive answer to that, but I'm going to give you a criterion to help guide additional thought on this. Okay, so just like with artificial discretion, we're trying to give you an abstract framework for thinking about, okay, right now, today, if we want to use artificial intelligence, how should we use it? And really complex tasks, high level tasks, gather some more information, use sensors, have more data, right? And somewhat complex tasks, take the data that's already there, analyze it for uh, relationships and causal variables. For less complex tasks, let's go ahead and automate some of those, right? So when should we use artificial bureaucrats? Across many sets of tasks, AI-powered artificial bureaucrats employing artificial discretion may learn more quickly and develop more powerful capabilities for task completion than are feasible for human bureaucrats. However, this is why I've um, harped on this comprehension. Some tasks are really important to us as humans that we can reason about them, give explanations for, and make arguments as to why we made those decisions. All right? Some examples may come to your mind. How about a physician, a doctor, right? want a doctor to be able to tell us reasons why and explain in a deep, meaningful way why they want to do a surgery on us, right? How about a judge, right? We want the judge to be able to write up an explanation as to why someone got the sentence they did. Why are we sending someone to prison and restricting their freedoms, right? These are just two examples of types of tasks, of types of bureaucrats, that at least some of their tasks require deep levels of explanatory comprehension, right? 
Those are the types of tasks, not, not that we still can't use some level of artificial discretion to help them get more information, more data, identify causal relationships. Actually, in the case of the judge, maybe we want the judge to have some type of uh, well-analyzed statistics that let the judge know how likely this person is to reoffend. We want the judge that understands broad stuff about the world to make that decision. So this comprehension criterion, I argue, is the thing that should really give us pause in distinguishing between when we should automate tasks and when those tasks really aren't useful for, or not appropriate for automation. All right, still with me? Still following? Okay. So, you'll notice I've tried to paint a really abstract picture of what artificial bureaucrats could be, but I sort of sidestepped a lot of the things that people generally care about. So, how do we give these artificial bureaucrats utility maximization functions so that they have all of our important public values coded into them, and as they get really smart, how do we keep them from going rogue? right, and then just destroying people with their super intelligence, right? I too have been worried about this as if I've started exploring artificial intelligence. In my early work at the beginning, we talked about, hey, what is this function? What is the, what is the utility maximization thing? And in general, the reason I've been worried about this is that when you read the leading people on artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence safety, they're concerned about these things. AI is already more capable than humans in some fairly complex spaces. So what do we do as it gets more capabilities? Is it just going to become this, this uh, super intelligent godlike thing that's going to be unaligned with us and decide that, you know, humans are really kind of pesky. Right? So um, luckily, there's been some additional thinking uh, along these topics of what is AI actually looking like in development, in reality, as it's getting more powerful? Is it really turning into these kind of general agents that are self-recursive and improvement? What is it looking like in the field? And then what does that mean for the actual risks that we need to be worried about, at least as our next steps, okay? So isn't to say that AGI isn't coming eventually, but there are sets of things that, have, that Drexler and others have found that, that help us mitigate those risks and help us think about them along the way. Drexler, uh, Drexler uh, calls this comprehensive AI services and automation of uh, research and development of AI. Okay, so a couple of thoughts from Drexler. The emerging trajectory of AI development reframes AI prospects. Ongoing automation of AI research and development tasks in conjunction with the expansion of AI services suggests a tractable, non-agent-centric model of recursive AI technology improvement that can implement general intelligence in the form of comprehensive AI services, a model that includes the, services, the service of developing new services. The comprehensive AI services model, which scales to super-intelligent level capabilities, allow, follows software engineering practice and abstracting functionality from implementation while maintaining the familiar distinction between application systems and development processes. That's a lot. So, when you look at this, think of services as tasks, right? And um, uh, developing new services as developing new competences, right? Ties it right back to Simon and the argument that we've been following along. So Drexler's saying, 
so, so far, while we need to be worried about general intelligence and we still need to worry uh, to some degree about these agent-centered models where we have a utility-maximizing agent that develops out in the real world of AI development at the cutting edge, this isn't what AI development actually looks like. It looks like something else, all right? It looks like the creation of lots of AI services, lots of different types of AIs that complete a bounded set of tasks, all right? Not some general intelligence, not some general utility maximization model. And in this development, functionality is separated from implementation, all right? Which means that as we're, that as we're creating the actual AI, we don't, we don't then immediately implement it in the real world. Those are different processes. Creating the functionality of an AI and implementing it in the real world are separate processes. And the development, the overall research and development process is different than creating an application to put out in the real world. Drexler goes on to argue that this comprehensive AI services approach um, and research and development automation suggest a technology-centered model of recursive improvement where the individual technology, the individual thing that we've created recursively improves but doesn't have these weird spillover effects into some crazy genius, right? He also suggests that this approach uh, and what's going on right now in AI R&D is a service-centered model, right? And what he means by that again is that just they create AIs that have capabilities that accomplish tasks. They accomplish some competency. They accomplish some service. Not all the services in the world, like we worry about with artificial general intelligence, not some complex moral structure, just complete a task, all right? And that some of these tasks that are currently being worked on that also help us address the artificial general intelligence concern are these, right? These right here. Modeling human concerns. One of the leading AI people in the world has written the, the, the main textbook is Stuart Russell. This is what his lab is working on. How to train AIs to understand human concerns based on the uh, wide assortments of data. Interpreting human requests. Suggesting implementations. Requesting clarifications. Developing and testing systems monitoring deployed systems, assessing feedback from users, upgrading and testing systems. Each one of these is not something that some, again, some uh, generally intelligent being has. They are individual types of tasks, individual types of services that be, can be created and employed as some subsystem, some service that we might care about that we might care about in delivering governance services. In particular, some of these tasks would be important to thinking about our artificial bureaucrats, right? We want our artificial bureaucrats to have an understanding of human concerns. We want them to be able to interpret a human request and not go make a bunch of paper clips, right? We want it to be able to suggest things, not just go do things. Um, we want it to request clarification when it doesn't truly uh, when it can't interpret what we're saying. I want it to be able to monitor systems that are actually out in deployment. These are different sets of tasks, different sets of services that we want to push AI development in. 
Again, without necessarily creating a utility maximizing general agent. Going back to the artificial systems, right? Each of these could be a subsystem, a subcomponent, a service that works together to help some type of intelligent complex system interact in its external environment. A few more quotes from Drexler and then I'll be done, leaving time for some questions. Right on time, all right. Intelligent systems optimize to perform bounded tasks, in particular episodic tasks with a bounded time horizon. You can, these are all kinds of things like teaching in a classroom, all, all sorts of things that bureaucrats might do, for example need not be agents with open-ended goals that call for self-preservation, cognitive enhancement, resource acquisition, and so on. By Nick Bostrom's orthogonality thesis, this holds true regardless of the level of intelligence applied to those tasks. Bostrom's orthogonality thesis is just that any level of intelligence can be put towards any type of specific goal. His book, Superintelligence, kind of set off some of this conversation. He's also the director of the Future of Humanity Institute that Drexler published this uh, technical paper from. Basic research, which sets the overall pace of technological process, progress, could be safe and effective with relatively little human guidance. Application development, by contrast, requires strong human guidance, but as an inherent part of the development task to deliver desirable functionality rather than as an impediment. Support for human guidance can be seen as an AI service and can draw on predictive models of human approval and concerns. So here is separating the different types of tasks within the AI development process that humans need to be a part of. Right? That humans need to have some deep understanding of rather than just turning it over to AI automation. Couple more quotes from Drexler. Consideration of concrete task structures and corresponding services suggests that SI, which is, stands for super intelligent, which means just more intelligent than a human, level AI systems can safely converse with humans, perform creative search, and propose design systems, designs for systems to be implemented and deployed in the world. Systems that provide design and planning services can be optimized to provide advice without optimizing to manipulate human acceptance of that advice. Here Drexler is just spelling out the different types of services that we might be able to create at superhuman levels to help us accomplish more tasks while still maintaining some level of safety and minimizing risks as much as possible. In both markets and battlefields, advantages in reaction time and decision quality can motivate transfer of tactical control to AI systems despite potential risks. For strategic decisions, however, the stakes are higher Speed is less important and advice can be evaluated by human beings and the incentives to yield control are correspondingly weak. Okay? This goes back to some of the earlier stuff we were looking at where different tasks occurring at different levels of the organization with different required levels of discretion. Some are going to be appropriate for AI. Some are not going to be appropriate for AI. Right? Some of the high level strategic battle or institutional decisions are still going to be need to be remain in the purview of humans and there's nothing keeping from this approach keeping that from being so. Increasing automation of AI R&D suggests that AI capabilities may advance surprisingly rapidly, a prospect that increases the urgency of addressing conventional AI risks such as an unpredictable failures, adversarial adversarial, excuse me, manipulation, criminal use, destabilizing military applications and economic disruption. Prospects for the relatively rapid emergence of systems with broad portfolios of capabilities, complex intelligent systems, as I've argued. 
uh, including potentially autonomous planning and action, lend increased credence to extreme AI risk scenarios, while the AI services model suggests strategies for avoiding or containing those risks while gaining the benefits of high and super intelligent level AI capabilities. That's a long quote. Okay, what is this saying? So my argument is that this comprehensive AI services gives us a path forward. It gives us a path to think about increasing our capabilities with AI while avoiding the, the broader alignment concerns that come with artificial general intelligence. However, we still have all kinds of risks and concerns with these new, these new tools, these new capabilities. Some of our earlier work has highlighted that what this is going to do is it's going to span, it's going to create a span in the space of capabilities for nefarious governments and nefarious actors to do more harm, right? There's going to be an increase in anonymity for how those uh, acts are committed. There's going to be more psychological distance. You don't have to train people to torture people, for example. You can just execute it, right? So this approach doesn't do away with our risks, but it refocuses them on the more realistic next-term risks that we need to think about while improving our uh, abilities, while improving the AI services to actually improve overall governance and governance tasks. It focuses the types of things that we need to be worried about. Hey, we made it all the way to the conclusion. All right, so in conclusion, pulling it all together. As AI tools for artificial discretion become more powerful, we need a careful strategy for how to employ artificial complex intelligence systems in the form of bureaucrats, artificial bureaucrats, as we think about making more use of automation. Building from Simon, we can think about artificial bureaucrats in the same abstract way that we think of other artificial systems, using that same language, same descriptions, same accounts of things, same important variables. We can think of artificial bureaucrats as complex intelligent systems with the purpose of completing governance tasks that are hierarchical in structure and, structure and contain nearly decomposable subsystems. These subsystems in their development can be guided by Drexler's comprehensive AI services approach with a focus on the development of AI services that may approach superintelligence without necessarily creating self-improvement agents, self-improving agents, or explicitly coding in a utility function or a set of public values. This is an excellent component to the task-based approach that we talked about earlier. And as one initial guide or one initial takeaway, the comprehension criteria is one clear line in the sand that we can draw for where natural complex intelligence systems like humans should be preferred in the decision-making to our artificial complex intelligence systems because they do not yet have these capacities. <sighs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.